Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He is the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, which is a wealth management company based in New York. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Kyril. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Just give us a brief history. We're going to get into what the firm does, but a brief history of what you did before you founded the firm. Sure. Um, I got my start at Goldman Sachs right out of undergrad and was able to work my way into the prime brokerage business there, which if you're familiar with what that is, it basically caters to the hedge fund clientele uh, of all the big banks. And so uh, I felt like the hedge fund industry was an interesting place to go because you know, all the smartest minds seem to be going, leaving the banks and going to start hedge funds or work at hedge funds. So I wanted to align myself with that, with that industry. This is kind of 2001, 2002 timeframe. So uh, right after the dot-com uh, bubble burst and the hedge fund industry was growing really, really well. Uh, in 2009, right after the, the financial crisis, I joined a client of mine, which was a uh, credit hedge fund founded by two ex Goldman Sachs investors. And um, I was there for the next five years. I was recruited in, into a handful of roles after that and um, eventually decided to start my own advisory practice in 2016, initially focused on uh, alternative investment uh, practices and, and helping alternative investment managers doing some private placement stuff. I had this idea for what is now Centerfin in the back of my head for a long time. And um, you know, late 2019, early 2020, right before COVID, uh, put a team together to actually get it going. And uh, we went live at the beginning of this year uh, and, and growing really well. So what's wrong with traditional money management uh, firms that you felt you had to do something alternative? Oh, boy. Uh, we have enough time to, to cover everything. <laughs> <Not an hour. laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think you're very familiar. And I think, you know, you, you do what you do because you'd like, you know, you, you'd like to educate people and, and shine a light on uh, on some of the things that are uh, not the right things to do out there. So I had the same uh, kind of experience over 20 years on Wall Street, um, friends and family coming to me over the years asking me what to do with their retirement savings, what to do with their, you know, whatever taxable savings they might have. And I've always just had a really hard time giving them a good answer. You know, the best I could come up with, uh, in, you know, over that period of time was to invest in low-cost low index funds and, 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 and hopefully that compounds over time and at least you don't have the expenses. The, the problem is that all the other solutions out there, and there's been a fair amount of, a fair amount of new things that have, that have been tried over the last decade or so, but um, they, they all suffer from uh, various, um, various issues. So you know, traditional financial uh, advice, so going to a broker-dealer um, like a, you know, Bank of America or J.P. Morgan or, or whatnot, um, the people that work there are very much beholden to those institutions. And so, um, you know, if you, if you get those people in a room, they'll tell you that, you know, I really like uh, helping people manage their money, but I'm very limited in what I can do because, you know, if I work at call it Bank of America, I can only use Bank of America products and I'm incentivized to use those products. And so the fees you often pay are compounded by the fact that not only are you paying an advisory fee, uh, but you're also paying, you know, fees for the products that that, that those financial advisors um, recommend and, and invest their clients' money into. Um, and again, it's not it's it's not to speak badly of, of of those practices. It's just the way it's set up. The incentives are there for the financial advisors to 
uh, invest into proprietary products of, of the bank or the so broker dealer. So it's limited. What, what the, they're not being able to offer you the best things out there because they're limited to what's on their approved list is what you're saying. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Although and, aren't there SEC rules about this that you're not supposed to uh, you know, incentivize people to only use in-house? I mean, that used to happen, but I thought they'd loosen that up and they said you're really not supposed to just push your inside proprietary things anymore. Yeah, and, and there's different there's different standards. So um, I believe when you're sitting inside a broker dealer, you're you're acting as an agent of the broker dealer as well as an uh, as an agent of the registered investment advisor. And I think that the the standard you're held to as an agent of the broker dealer sitting inside of a registered investment advisor, I believe, is a suitability standard. Uh, so it's, all, it's not a fiduciary standard. You're saying it's not it's not a fiduciary standard. Um, there are definitely some practices within those organizations that do use a fiduciary approach, but for the for the vast majority, vast majority, especially the financial advisors that focus on, um, you know, kind of more mass market uh, uh, consumers, yeah. that that really doesn't exist. So, so what is wrong with the fiduciary approach where you do have to put the client's best interest first? What's wrong with that approach? So the fiduciary approach is, is actually a better approach. Uh, the problem is, is that the registered investment advisor industry, the RIA industry, that, that largely uses that approach, uh, first of all, is a very fragmented place. So it's very hard to navigate uh, between various different registered investment advisors. And second of all, these are practices that are generally not very scalable, meaning it, you, know, you would need to have a, a pretty uh, significant amount of net worth in order for it to make sense for these registered investment advisors. So, you know, most of these firms that you talk to and they're, you know, they're, um, they're, they're literally, I think, 10,000 of them throughout the country. Most of these firms are not really interested in, you know, sub million dollar, call it uh, roughly speaking accounts. Uh, no. those, those are not, you know, those are really not um, big enough accounts to warrant the expense structure that they have. And so, while they do provide what I think is a superior product, both from the fiduciary standard perspective and from the fact that they can go a little bit more broader than, you know, sitting inside a broker dealer or a bank, um, they can't, uh, they can't provide it at scale. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the other thing that people say, as you mentioned before, is index funds. And there's a trillions and trillions of dollars in passive index funds. And people say the academic studies say you just active money management will never beat passive over the long run, so just do that and go to sleep and wake up 20 years from now and it'll all be fine. What's wrong with that approach? Yeah, I think that's probably the most uh, intellectually honest approach that, um, that you know, it, you know if, if you've gotten that advice, that's probably the most intellectually honest uh, answer and, and suggestion. And, and like I said, you know, before I started Centerfin, that's, that's the best I can come up with as a suggestion for uh, my friends and family. But the problem, I think, with that approach is that you're missing um, you're missing a whole set of the market, right? So you're basically investing in these very large indices. These in, the components of these industries have gotten, you know, so let's say, let's take the S&P 500 for, uh, as an example, it's the broad uh, market index of the U.S. stock market. And it's the basis of many, many index products out there. Um, you know, all the low-fee products are, are you know, somehow t uh, tied to the S&P 500. Well, the constituents of that index, so there's 500 companies, um, but the top, I think it was like seven, per, seven companies at the end of last year represented something like 25% of the exposure. So they're very concentrated to the biggest companies. Um, these companies, you know, these are household names that you know, Microsoft, 
uh, Apple, Google um, are kind of in the top. JP Morgan is a, is a non-tech company in the top kind of 10 of the S&P 500. And, um, and the truth is, is that you're kind of beholden to how these indices are put together. And there's some committee at the S&P that puts them together, and that's how you get the, the type of um, exposure that you get. And the other thing that I think is wrong, particularly today, is that these, the, 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 the index, the passive index approach made a lot more sense in the kind of post-financial crisis uh, investment environment. And what I mean by that is that we had this, um, you know, as you very well know, we went through a financial crisis, which was uh, led really by the fact that we had a, a bubble in housing, which was really just speculation in housing. And then we, um, the, you know, the Federal Reserve had to step in, had to bail out some banks, had to let some banks go. Uh, we pumped a lot of money into the system and have literally been pumping money. The Federal Reserve has been pumping money into the system ever since the financial crisis. So, you know, if you've heard of quantitative easing, that's what I'm referring to. Sure. It's basically just printing money and, and providing capital to the banks for the banks to then provide to the economy. And um, that type of environment is very conducive to just a passive, long-only strategy. So if you were to, you're absolutely right, if you were to buy, you know, just the NASDAQ, let's say, you know, in 2010, you would have compounded capital very, very nicely, you know, towards the end of 2021. But um, we have, I, you know, I would argue since COVID started in, in March of 2020, we've entered a different regime uh, in, the, in the markets globally, where we do not believe that the Federal Reserve is going to be, uh, it's, it's not going to be as easy for them to just print money and, um, you know, to, to kind of uh, address whatever issues might come up uh, in, the, in the near term. And so uh, we think that any, any similar approach to what they did over the past decade is going to yield in a lot more inflationary pressures. And inflationary pressures largely hurt kind of the, the bottom you know, half of the of the population, you know, in terms of uh, income and wealth. And okay. so it's it's very difficult for the Fed to go out there and, and kind of apply the same methodologies if inflation's going to, you know, if it's going to push inflation high to levels where, you know, people can't afford to eat or um, to live or to, you know, drive their car. That's very, very difficult. So, so they need to break inflation, which is why they've been so aggressive this year. Yes. You know, many would argue that they were very late to the party. And um, but our view has been, you know, there's been a lot of transitory talk. There's been a lot of, you know, peak inflation talk. And our view has been you have to you have to look at the data. Um, and we think that the Fed is not going to stop hiking or tightening financial conditions um, until inflation is significantly down from from where it is today. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He is the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, which is a wealth management firm based in New York. You can find out more at their website, centerfin.com. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's gonna be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is gonna be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so, but I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. 
visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He is the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, which is a wealth management firm based in New York. Their website is centerfin.co. Earlier I said .com, it's centerfin.co. Welcome back to the show, Kyril. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So we talked about the problem with traditional money management. So tell us what solution uh, you are offering at Centerfin that's different than all the other m- wealth management models we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So the the, the last thing I was talking about was that you know the, the passive approach that um, was widely used and, and and continues to be widely used today really made sense in the in the kind of a market environment that we lived in, kind of post financial crisis leading up to the to to really COVID. Um, and we think that that approach is going to potentially struggle going forward for the foreseeable future. So, you know, if you look at that approach from 2000 to 2010, if you look at the, you know, performance of major uh, broad stock indices, you basically didn't make any money. You actually lost a little bit of money over a 10-year period. And I think if you tell a lot of people today that, hey, you know, if they, if they use this passive approach that in 10 years they're going to be no better than where they started, they would be very surprised slash uh, probably would have a hard time believing it, but the truth is, is that it's not uh, it's not uncommon for um, for stock indices broadly to go through long periods of of, of, of tougher performance, um, as is, is it not uncommon for stock markets to go through long periods of, of positive performance. We're just li- living in a little bit of a recency bias where, you know, the last ten years have been good for the for this type of approach, and so people are just you know uh, looking forward and, and saying that it's going to continue to be good. And so what, what we decided to do at Centerfin is really use a lot of the learnings um, of our uh, founding team, including our CFO and our CIO. Uh, you know, between the the three of us, we have you know a, a combined sixty years of experience in you know hedge funds, uh, family offices, and the like. Uh, you know, I've been uh, interacting with very sophisticated investors for the better part of two decades and, and have a very um, good appreciation of their approach. Uh, our CFO, you know, has over two decades of family office experience. Our CIO has, you know, two decades of alternative investment experience and wealth management experience. And the idea was, you know, why can't we replicate that approach that some of these sophisticated institutional investors use 
including family offices, um, but, but use technology to be able to offer it at scale. So when I spoke about kind of the RIA world, I mentioned that they, they you know, th- those organizations generally do not scale well. Well, the point is, you know, that they, you know, sub a million dollars really doesn't make sense for them to take on the client. Um, where with Centerfin, what we do is we just use technology to be able to lower the overall cost of what we do to be able to then deliver a higher quality fiduciary solution and incorporate a lot of these things that we've learned in the hedge fund and alternative investment world, which is um, not very common at all, even for, you know, the, 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 the wealthier. Um, a lot of people do not have exposure to some of the things that uh, I'm going to talk about, which we think right. is important, which is so important to have. You're saying that you're digitally native, I meaning you're kind of born that way and, and the whole firm was founded. So what, what does that mean in practical terms, that you're using artificial intelligence to allocate funds and portfolios or to pick stocks? What, 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 do you, what is the practical application of being digitally native? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, so we do not use artificial intelligence. Um, you know, we've we've heard that term used a lot in um, in this space, and and when we've dug into what that actually means, and I have a fair amount of exposure with with quantitative uh, investment strategies and, and hedge funds that utilize them, and um, and artificial intelligence, you know, I think is is a marketing term, more you know, at least today. Uh, more so than it is a fundamentally, um, you know, correct terms in, in, in terms of ha- how to utilize um, technology to help manage money. So we don't actually do that at all. What I mean by digitally native is that, you know, we start with a digital um, offering, meaning you um, you access our services via, uh, you know, an app that we've built. Uh, and, um, and that app sits on top of you know, the broker dealer that houses the client accounts, but everything that happens happens, you know, pretty much automatically. We've automated pretty much every part of the process. Um, and then we combine the human experience, which is, you know, I mentioned the, the kind of three um, founding team members from the investment side of things, um, where we actually actively manage the client portfolios. And we're able to do that, you know, in a, in a fairly customized fashion by utilizing technology. Um, but But they're not an automated, they're not a robo-advisor, they're not automated at all, because we actually think that you need to be active in this environment um, to help get through it. And so, so we use, you know, kind of, we, we get rid of a lot of the operational and, and, um, and kind of uh, accounting and, 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 and kind of, you know, manual um, back office, so to speak, uh, elements of, of the business by automating it all with technology. Um, but we actually use human experience to manage the client portfolios and using technology to be able to do it on a customized basis. What What is the minimum you need to be a, become a client of Centerfin? So we don't have a stated minimum. I will say as we've been onboarding clients off our wait list, we've tried to keep it to $100,000 plus. Um, but, you know, theoretically, that, that minimum... Um, you know, could be very low as, as we as we get to, to larger scale. Um, so I think our sweet spot, you know, if, if you ask me, you know, in a couple of more months or a couple of more quarters, I think our sweet spot will be somewhere between, you know, average client account somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, um, between 100000 and a $1 million. That's the market that I think is really, really underserved in, in, the, in the world of wealth management. And what are the management fees for, for putting it, you know, 100000 to a million in there? Yeah, so we're charging an all-in wrap fee, which means it includes, you know, any kind of trading expenses and whatnot that happen when when we manage client portfolios, and that's one half of one percent a year. Um, so it's a fraction of what a traditional financial advisor would charge. 
Um, obviously, any ETFs or funds that we may use have fees that are associated with them, so that, that kind of ticks on top of it, uh, which would be the case for you know, pretty much any other, um, any other offering out there. So you're saying that other firms doing it the traditional way would charge a much higher management fee than, than you're charging? Yeah. So the, the management fee that, you know, people, if you don't have more than, you know, if you have several million dollars of, of investable assets uh, at a bulge bracket, uh, bulge bracket uh, broker dealer, you're probably paying one and a quarter, 1.25% a year on your assets to start. Uh, and that might go down, you know, as your assets get bigger. Um, I'd say in a in an RIA, as I mentioned, a more independent fiduciary uh, based organization, you know, the 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 fees, you know, we've seen it, you know, all over the place from like one to three percent. So um, so yeah, so so we're charging a fraction of of even the lowest uh, end of those ranges. And the reason you can do that is the automation, is the, the digitalness of what you're doing. Is that right? A hundred percent. Yes. And uh, you've been around a relatively short period of time, but what kind of performance, what, what benchmarks do you use to perform, to show your performance and how have you done against those benchmarks? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I can't, you know, for obvious reasons, I can't speak to specific performance. I will say that the way that we kind of think about um, our client portfolios is in a similar way that we've learned um, very large institutions that have a very long-term orientation, right? So most of our clients are in their kind of 30s and 40s. They have, you know, 20 to 30 years of, of time horizon, really. And so um, we have to incorporate that into how we do things. And so if you think about a client with 20 to 30 years of time horizon, you'd want to have, you know, a lot more risk assets, just broadly speaking, right? So you, you'd, you'd want to try to compound the capital um, at, at an equity-like return because you have a very long time horizon. And so what we'd like to do is compound the capital at that you know, long-term oriented equity-like um, return profile, but do it with, while taking less risk. That's really the goal. And that's, that's where our, kind of, our experience and our backgrounds come in to, to help us navigate that. So are cryptocurrencies part of what you put people into? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, my personal take on crypto uh, has been there's Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum and then everything else. I think the, the broader term crypto referring to the cryptocurrency markets and all these tokens and coins and whatnot out there are largely speculation still at this point. Um, you know, you saw, it, you saw this market go to $3 trillion of, of, of market value and then, you know, two thirds of it disappeared uh, in a matter of, you know, months uh, earlier this year. I think it was just, you know, caught up in the same, um, speculative bubble-like uh, environment that we've lived in since, you know, we, we poured all this money into the economy two years ago to, to help deal with COVID. Um, but I do believe there's value in, in Bitcoin. What I said to friends and family since the beginning uh, of, of my personal involvement in, in Bitcoin has been it needs to be sized accordingly. So you can't, you know, I see, I see these horror stories of, you know, people putting their life savings into some you know, one t one token or one lending scheme, and and losing it all, and and it's just, just it just reinforces the the need for for what we're doing and 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 why we're doing it. Because you know, our view is that you can get exposure to crypto, but you need to size it accordingly. So in our client portfolios, it's sized relatively small. Where you know, if it goes down 50%, it's not gonna you know, it's not gonna make or break things. But if it goes up 100%, it's actually gonna really help the um, the quality uh, adjusted, you know, return, the risk adjusted return profile of the portfolio. So that's how we think about things. So there's, there are things in the portfolio that are more speculative. So crypto and let's say biotech are kind of on that end of the spectrum. 
And then there are things on the on on the more less speculative side of the portfolio, including things that benefit from inflation. You know, so for instance, you know, we came into this year with you know a decent amount of commodities exposure, um, and we view that as the opposite of the of the barbell. So it's not you know. So again, we're trying to we're not we're not nearly 100% equity risk, um, but we're trying to generate an equity like risk uh, return profile while taking less risk overall at the portfolio level. Why do you think crypto fell so much this year? Is it the Fed raising rates, or why did it go from sixty-five thousand to twenty thousand or something on Bitcoin? Yeah, I think it's I think it's literally the same. It's 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 a it's a symptom of everything else that was going on, right? You had these meme stocks that you know you had you know nearly bankrupt companies trading you know at market valuations of multiple billions of dollars. That, by the way, has continued even as recently last week. Um, you had um, you had crypto. You had you know, art, you had wine, you had luxury watches, um, you know, all these things went up in value uh, because there was so much money sloshing around in the system. And I think that, you know, as liquidity was started to get drained from the system, which, by the way, just only started in June, you know, the, the talking about and the anticipation of it uh, started, uh, you know, months prior. And that's why, you know, all that steam was kind of let out of the, the bubble, so to speak. So it's not by any means surprising. Uh, and it hasn't changed our view again on what Bitcoin is. Uh, and, and what has what it has the potential to be, but it's not by any means surprising. So it was kind of a risk-off trade brought on by the Federal Reserve tightening policies. One hundred percent, in 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 the same, you know, really along the same lines as everything else I mentioned that's speculative, right? It's like art, wine, you know, like <laughs> I was getting emails about you know uh, luxury timepieces. I mean, you know, crazy stuff, um, stuff that that only happens in these kind of environments. And you think that's going to continue with the Fed continuing to raise rates, that this kind of uh, crunch on risk assets is going to continue? I think it will continue. Um, you know, look, I mean, we, we have to reserve the right to be flexible, and, and we think things move really quickly these days. And so that's why you need to be, you know, you, you need to be active. You can't just kind of set it and forget it. Um, you know, I think if you, you know, if you really uh, put our feet to the fire today, um, I think we'd say, yes, the Fed is probably going to raise rates, you know, more uh, for longer than maybe the market's anticipating. And the reason is because, you know, inflation is really not in check. And, um, and, the, and the downside of it is, is a deflation of risk assets or, you know, speculative equities, you know, crypto, all these things that we just discussed, you know, uh, they, they don't benefit from, from this type of action. Um, but the benefit is bringing down inflation, which is helpful to the everyday consumer and, and really the, you know, the bottom half of the population um, yeah. that really suffers from it. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He's the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, which is a wealth management firm based in New York. You can find out more at their website, centerfin.co. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. 
You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He is the CEO and founder at Centerfin, which is a company based in New York. You can find out more at which is centerfin.co. Welcome back to the show, Kyril. Thanks. So one of your uh, strategies is, in addition to doing traditional stocks and bonds and ETFs, is alternative investments. So let's go through some of the alternative investments you use, the pros and cons of, of using them. What is the most common alternative investment that you put clients' money into? So, so one of the things that we did when we went out and, um, and surveyed the, the market is we found you know, very traditional alternative investments, so private funds, um, you know, so hedge funds or private equity or venture capital, again, suffer from some of these issues where they do not, um, they're not scalable, meaning, you, you know, you need to have, at the, at the smallest, you need to have 100000 or 250000 to be able to invest with one of these funds. You definitely need to be accredited in order to be able to do so. Um, and generally, these funds, you know, don't like to take you know, uh, thousands of, of, of invest, small investors like that, right? And so what we decided to do, and, and then, so then that leads you to the 40 act kind of alternative investment world, which is relatively new, probably, you know, really started to get going over, over the last decade or so. And you look at those funds and, and you know, again, when we looked at what was, what was available off the shelf, um, we were not particularly impressed with anything and the fees seemed like they were too high and dragging on the returns. And so what we decided to do, and this is something, you know, again, that's kind of in progress, so there's kind of limited um, things I could say about it, but we decided to basically put up our own fund structure, which we're in the process of doing, where um, we are able to uh, get exposure to some of these alternative investment strategies, just given the nature of our experience and our relationships. And so kind of one of the first things, you know, that, that we're, we're working on is getting exposure for clients to distressed credit, which is um, you know, something I have a lot of experience in, and so, so does our CIO. Um, and, and the reason why we think that's interesting, um, aside from the fact that you know, from, a, from a cyclicality perspective, um, you know, we're moving into an environment where you know, there should be more distress uh, because, you know, there's you know, markets are under pressure. The economy looks like it's rolling over. It's generally a more conducive environment for the strategy. But really what, what you know, I've always liked about it um, 
personally and, and our CIO um, in his experience is that it's, it's much less correlated to um, other risk assets. So it's effectively, you know, more idiosyncratic in nature from a return profile, you know, and so um, we had talked about, you know, uh, b- before, you know, returns that are not generally correlated to the market. We think those are some of the, 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 the highest quality returns you can get. And so if you put um, uh, an allocation like that into client portfolios with traditional risk assets, again, you come out, you know, with a, you know, hopefully a portfolio level of return that's of higher quality um, than if you were just in traditional assets. So that's so, kind of... Is this junk level. bonds or this is beyond, this is like defaulted bonds? I mean, how, how deep do you go into distress? Yeah, this is not just junk, junk bonds. You know, junk bonds, in our view and in our experience, are not a great allocation. Um, so, so we don't have any exposure to just traditional high-yield debt. Um, that, we think, is actually, you know, generally speaking, asymmetrically priced to the downside, meaning, you know, you have a lot of downside and your, your coupon is limited there. Um, and the coupon's not very high, even even as things have sold off. So yeah, this is stuff that's that's you know in stress or distress. So stuff that's you know no longer investable by traditional um, high yield or junk bond investors. Um, and so it falls into the hands of of other investors that are you know historically referred to as distressed investors who, uh, who who pick up you know bonds for sometimes cents on the dollar um, with the goal of recovering you know uh, something higher than that. So you're looking at the assets underlying it, and it's selling below the value of the assets, the collateral, basically. And then you think it'll be collected over time. Is that the, the basic strategy? Yeah, it, there's different scenarios, and, and, and each one is, 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 is usually unique to its, to its situation. But the, the, the underlying um, philosophy is exactly that. You're buying something at a, at a value that you think is below what you can recover ultimately. Now, that could be because the company gets, gets, goes through a restructuring and then recovers. That could be because the company is liquidated and sold off in pieces. And then, um, and then you know, the value of, of, of those um, liquidation proceeds are higher than what you paid. So there's various different outcomes. But, um, but yeah, generally speaking, you're buying. It's a value investing strategy at, a, at its very basic. And this is only on the corporate bonds? I mean, I think of Argentina or Russian bonds. Venezuelan bonds could be you know, cheap because it defaulted, basically. It, do, you, do you go into co- uh, company or, or, or countries as well? No. I mean, our, 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 our goal right now is to, is to begin with corp, more corporate debt, broadly speaking. Um, there, there's definitely stuff to do in emerging markets in, in sovereign debt. Um, we actually, we were talking about internally, you know, what if there's another, you know, uh, the dollar, if it, you know, I'm sure you're, you're aware, has been super strong um, yes. over the course of this year. Um, and, you know, against almost all other currencies, um, that's very, very hard for emerging markets. And, um, you know, we, we were literally having an internal conversation this morning about, you know, what if we have, you know, some sort of, not repeat, but some, you know, some version two of uh, the, the late 90s financial um, Asian financial crisis. Um, and, and, you know, if that, ha- if that were to happen, there would be a lot of ramifications, one of which would be there's potentially interesting opportunities in distressed sovereign debt, but well, not, not, not right now. So Sri Lankan bonds are not in your portfolio yet? Huh? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So that's distressed credit. What are some other alternative uh, investment ideas that you put into your portfolios? Well, I could tell you one other thing that we do that I think is unique to us is um, so uh, a global macro is a is a is a hedge fund strategy. It's actually one of the original hedge fund strategies out there. 
Um, you know, a lot of the really famous hedge fund investors, Paul Tudor Jones, Louis Bacon, Stanley Druckenmiller, George Soros. These are all, you know, original, um, you know, uh, original gangsters, for lack of a better term, in the hedge fund industry. Um, and they're and they're legendary, legendary investors. All of them um, largely utilize the global macro strategy, which basically you take a look at the world at a very high level, uh, top down, and um, and you and you find a way to to position yourself to make money, to, whether it be in the currency or the or the debt or the stocks. Um, but you're not looking at you know, bottoms up, you're not looking at companies and, and, you know, one company versus the other, you're just looking at top down and you're, and you're picking areas of value where, where you think you can make money. And so global macro as a strategy is something that both my CIO and myself like have, have a, a lot of, uh, you know, intellectual interest in historically and have spent a lot of time with global macro hedge fund managers and have a lot of them in our kind of network of, of relationships. And it's a strategy that suffered for a long time in that decade that we talked about post-financial crisis where you were best off just buying, you know, an index uh, and just kind of riding that up at, at very, very low fees. Um, there, there was just not a lot of, you know, stuff going on in, in, the, in the macro environment where there was, you know, obvious areas to make money because, you know, the Fed was just printing money and so that just meant risk assets were going up. Yeah, there were, you know, periods of stress and volatility uh, periodically, but generally speaking, it was very hard to make money uh, in global macro. Now, um, we were sitting in March of 2020, and our CIO and myself, I remember having this conversation, and we both came to the same conclusion, you know, based on this, the, the central bank response to, to the COVID crisis in, in the you know, first half of 2020, and then the fiscal response, you know, with governments, you know, writing checks to people directly into their checking accounts, um, we felt like all of a sudden, you know, it, we switched into an environment where global macro matters. And so how do we use global macro? So we don't have currently any funds that we utilize from a global macro perspective. However, a lot of our views um, and how we choose to tweak portfolios and, you know, how we're allocated overall come down from these macro views that we, you know, really, you know, we really kind of form based on a lot of our conversations on a daily basis with some of these hedge fund investors that we know. And we do think the macro environment it's super conducive right now to, to making money. I think, you know, global macro might be one of the few hedge fund strategies this year that's actually having a good year. Um, and we think for good reason, because this, this, is a, this is a much better environment for, for the strategy, and we think it will continue to be so going forward. And briefly, what are you seeing in the global macro? Where are the areas of value and undervalue and overvaluation? So, um, well, the dollar's been strong, as, as we started talking about, and that's that's been, you know, that's been a trend that um, that we've been, you know, we've been witnessing, and and and, and it's been widely anticipated, I think, uh, by the the macro community. I think probably the biggest thing that is important to get our hands around is um, is the relationship between uh, the Western world and the Eastern world, namely the relationship between U the United States and and Europe, and then China and Asia and Russia, right? Um, there's clearly, you know, we're going through a, a shift right now where, you know, pre-COVID, um, and it was already starting pre-COVID, but, you know, largely pre-COVID, we were going through a couple of decade period of time where there was globalization, right? So we were, you know, importing cheap labor from, you know, Asia and China. Uh, we were importing cheap energy from Russia and other um, other states in Eastern Europe. And, um, and that's, we think that that's in the process of ending and, and changing and going the other way. And so what, what that means, and which is why 
I mentioned early on uh, our comment on the Fed and, and hiking. We think what that means is that when you had globalization and you had you, you were effectively importing deflation via uh, cheap energy and cheap labor, you you had a counterbalance to all of the money that was being printed. And so that's why you know if you had, if you heard the Federal Reserve in uh, you know leading up to COVID, the one complaint they all had was you know, there's not enough inflation. And it's because, you know, they were printing all this money, um, but there was all these, de- you know, very powerful deflationary sources that were counterbalancing all of that, uh, all of that new money supply. And that's why you didn't really see inflation uh, in, in goods or services. Now, you flip that environment on its head, and, um, and all of a sudden you have, you know, uh, the printing of the money becomes inflationary. And that's, I think that's what we've seen and why we've actually seen inflation, you know, get out of control in some, you know, I, I read this morning, UK can anticipate a 13% inflation in the beginning of next year. These are these are very, very hard numbers for people to swallow. But um, these are not things that the Federal Reserve policy, they're not going to change the war in Russia and Ukraine or, or China's behavior. The, the Federal Reserve doesn't really have any input into bringing inflation down for those reasons why inflation's picking up. Is that right? But they do control the money supply, and so um, so what they will do, which is you know, which is again goes back to the the original comment, is that they will continue to hike interest rates in order to bring down inflation by uh, changing the you know overall uh, economic picture, right? So they're they're actually trying to you know effectively they're they're trying to land the plane so to speak and 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 have a soft landing, but um, but really it would be better for them for us to have a recession because that would really put pressure on inflation to come down. Yeah, very good. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur. He's the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, which is a wealth management firm based in New York City. Uh, You can find out more at their website, centerfin.co. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kyril Asatur, the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, a wealth management firm based in New York City. Their website, centerfin.co. Welcome back to the show, Kyril. Thanks, Jordan. We'll talk a little bit more about the alternative investments. We talked about distressed credit and the global macro strategy. What are some other alternative investments uh, that you look at? 
Yeah, this is, um, again, an area that we've spent, uh, my team and I have spent the bulk of our careers in, and so we have, you know, fairly uh, well-developed views on this on this world. I think that um, one of the other areas that we generally like, and we are already using um, uh, kind of one manager in this space, is, um, is, fair, is, is, is specific parts of the equity market where the manager is not um, constrained by a, um, a long benchmark, they're basically able to run long short. So instead of just having just owning stocks, let's say in the technology sector, uh, they're able to um, to own stocks and short stocks. And and so um, again, they're putting together a profile of a return that hopefully is consistent with um, what a, a an equity return would look like, but while well, taking a very different risk profile. And so, um, so so some areas in the equity markets where we think this makes sense, where you know a manager with experience and a skill set can provide attractive returns over a long period of time are in sector focused um, equity funds. And so, for instance, I mentioned technology. So there's a lot of funds out there that focus on uh, technology, media and telecom, TMT. Um, healthcare is a really, really interesting area where, uh, you know, uh, specific sector expertise um, has shown that, you know, um, you can generate really attractive returns. Um, you know, there's very, there's very few, but financials is another kind of specialty area. And more recently, real estate has been an area that um, has seen, you know, has seen a lot of growth in, in long short funds out there. So we think that's an interesting area where we also um, think it's interesting is in the small cap part of the market. So, you know, small caps are generally referred to as, you know, sub $5 billion of market cap. Um, that's a smaller part of the market, less investors traffic in that part of the market. Um, that's where you can actually find managers that add skill um, and, and, and add to their return using their experience and their skill set. And um, we're actually, we use a fund right now in that space that's long biased but has the ability to short. And they have an interesting structure where they only get compensated, uh, you know, over their um, outperformance of, of the index. And so they're very incentivized to, um, to not hug that benchmark but to generate, you know, uh, absolute returns. So let me make it clear: Are you you're putting money with money managers, or are you buying ETFs that are buying these things? Are you doing individual stocks, or you're only putting your money with other money managers? So for for this um, for 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 these particular strategies, we will be utilizing. So we are already utilizing certain money managers that we know that we we partnered with, and in the future we'll be utilizing other money managers. They're mostly managers that do not come from the mutual fund world, but come from the hedge fund world. And so they have a, a very different mindset. It's a really um, an absolute return oriented mindset versus a, um, you know, kind of a, a long only mindset. Uh -huh. So is it kind of like a fund of funds? You're putting the funds from your clients into funds of these hedge fund people, these other money managers. You're not picking individual stocks or individual ETFs yourself. Is that correct? We are not picking individual stocks. We, uh, I shouldn't say that. We, there are instances where we are picking individual stocks, but 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 it's rare. It's sometimes used to just express a view. So, for instance, you know, we have a view that you know you want to have some commodities exposure, um, given the inflationary situation, as we've discussed. You know, copper is a commodity that's in in in, in, you know, in extreme demand um, and not enough supply of, and there's no real good way to get. Uh, proper commodity exposure for clients, and so we use a single stock in um, in in uh, that industry in order to express that view. And we use ETFs 
uh, for broad kind of uh, equity uh, sector exposure. But when it comes to um, these specialized managers in particular sectors where we think that there's better returns to be had, we will be partnering with these managers. And yes, it's, it's, it's kind of like a fund of funds, but um, for a portion of the client portfolio, definitely not, not the whole thing. So how can clients uh, judge how your performance is over the long term? Is there some venture? You're not comparing yourself to the S&P 500. What would be a fair way to compare what you're doing against other benchmarks? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so um, I think probably um, the most appropriate benchmark is some sort of, you know, 60-40 blend of, uh, of stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that blend, by the way, this year has done, uh, as, of, as of last week, I don't know how, um, I don't know what it's like as, as of yesterday, but as of last week, that, um, that approach has been down as much as just being long stocks, which is, I think, the first time ever that that's happened. Um, so we don't think that's obviously a good approach, which is why we, 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 we don't use that approach. Um, so our, our view would be, you know, to generate an equity-like, long-term equity-like uh, return on, on, for investors while taking less risk than if you were just buy equities. So, um, you know, if that long-time equity-like return is high single digits, kind of over very long periods of time, which I think is what it is, um, we'd, like to, we'd like to be able to do that while not taking nearly as much risk. As, um, as are you using as, bonds? I mean, you're using distressed bonds, but those are not traditional bonds. Are you you, you talk about sixty forty? The forty being bonds. Do bonds play a role in your portfolios? No, that was it, they could, but but right now they don't. And that was one of the things we that was a big thing that we did consciously going into twenty twenty two is that we just got rid of any traditional fixed income exposure because it just it just felt like the, those were. You know, that's supposed to be the less risky part of a client portfolio going into uh, 2022 with a 10 year at, you know, whatever it was, one and a half, one point six percent. That felt like very asymmetrically priced to the downside, given the interest rate um, uh, risk of, the, of those of those instruments. And so currently there's very little to no exposure in fixed income securities, um, traditional fixed income securities. But, yes, they could play a role in the future. They just don't right now because we don't think that the risk is priced well. So how do you report all this to clients? Do you show them which money managers you have so much money in and what their strategy is? It sounds like it's, there's a lot of things in the soup here that you've, you're mixing in. How do you report all this to clients? Yeah, so everything is available via our app. And so in the app, they can you know look at their overall performance. They can look at their portfolio. We break it down into kind of three categories. We break it down into the core ETF portfolio, and that's largely designed by us. And so that's the portfolio where you know, as I mentioned before, when we're kind of making tweaks around the edges and being tactical, that's where that's being done. And that's, you know, that's in combination with our CIO, CFO, and myself. Um, and then we have, you know, areas where we think active management makes sense. And so we have, um, you know, uh, that portion of the client portfolio where you can dig into what that looks like and what that's exposed to and then alternatives. And, and, and that's, that's also shown to the clients and all, you know, all inside our app. And the clients get to choose they want to do the core ETF, they want to do the active management, they want to do the alternatives, or you decide for them how much should go into the different three pots? So we have, uh, today we have full discretion, and so we decide based on their uh, risk tolerance and time horizon. And so um, everything is catered to those two, you know, depending on the output of, of the, uh, the, the answer to those questions, uh, the portfolio will be designed by us for that specific indi- individual, and they'll have 
uh, generally speaking, they'll have you know some portion of each three of those buckets. So in the short time we have left, why don't you kind of summarize what difference it would make for people to use your strategy and what you're offering compared to traditional wealth management? So we are a fiduciary RIA that's tech enabled. And so we're able to manage at a, you know, manage money at a fraction of the cost of a traditional RIA. We're also able to do it at a much lower minimum than a traditional RIA. Um, we use technology to be able to do that at the lower cost. And we give clients access to alternatives, um, alternative strategies that, that are not available widely out there. Um, and we actively manage the portfolio. So it's a, it's a very, in our view, you know, when we kind of look out there, there's nobody else that's doing what we're doing. And what has been the response from the marketplace so far? Are, are assets just pouring in because people see the, the value you're adding? Yeah, we've been pretty selective about um, onboarding clients. We we developed a waiting list, uh, you know, kind of leading up to, to our launch. And uh, we've been kind of steadily um, onboarding clients off of that waiting list. The response has been great. I think, you know, people, you know, generally speaking, our clients fall into the bucket where they they understand just they, they just have a tad more knowledge than the, the average person. And they can kind of see that, you know, going to, you know, a traditional financial advisor, they're not really getting anything specialized and they're paying a lot for it. But going to like a robo advisor, they're really not getting anything specialized. At least they're not paying for it. So um, we kind of sit in the middle and, um, and, and, it, and it's been really, the response has been awesome. Terrific. Well, very good. Well, we've had, learned a lot about the alternative money management style. Uh, Kyril Asseter has been my guest this hour. He's the CEO and co-founder at Centerfin, based in New York City. You can find out more at their website, centerfin.co, an alternative way to manage your money in a very volatile time. Thanks so much for being a great guest on the Money Answer Show, Kyril. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.